Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. It seems like we get bad news about the planet every day, but one sign I'm particularly concerned about and is particularly worrying is the disappearance of insects and specifically our bees. Today, I'm speaking to Dave Goulson from the University of Sussex about how bad the situation really is, what we could do to help, and what it means for humanity if we don't. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I have with me a professor of biology from Sussex University, Dave Goulson. Dave, you have a fascinating speciality and some really interesting books that we're going to talk about. So do you want to take it from there? Yeah, sure. As you said, I'm a professor of biology at Sussex University. I've been there for about eight years. So my speciality is insects, particularly bumblebees. I've been studying bumblebees for nearly 30 years now and obsessed by insects since I was a kid and I have no idea why different people are drawn to different things and for me I just loved I I remember collecting caterpillars from the edge of the school playground when I was only about five or six years old and sticking them in my lunchbox and taking them home and rearing them up and they eventually turned into these beautiful moths and I just thought that was really cool and somehow I've been lucky enough to make a career from chasing around (laughs) after insects. Wonderful. And is the interest in bumblebees a professional focus, as it were? Yeah, is this an area that needs study and that is particularly important to us? Because obviously pollinators are vastly important for life on the planet, really, in terms of plants and stuff. So do you want to explain their perspective in life and, and how it sort of fits in with that great network we call nature? Yeah, happy to. I mean, actually, the reason I started studying bumblebees was not because they're economically or ecologically important. It was just I spotted something interesting. There's a little nature reserve on the edge of Southampton called the Itchen Valley Country Park. And I was idly watching a patch of comfrey and these bumblebees that were flying around. And I noticed that the bees often fly up to a flower with their antennae kind of out. 
And at the last minute, they veer away without touching the flowers if there's something wrong with it. And anyone can see this. Once you've seen it once, you suddenly realize it's actually really common. Bees do it continually in every patch of flowers you look at. And I thought, well, what are they doing? Why they seem to be sort of being fussy, but why are they avoiding certain flowers? And I ended up spending five years trying to work out what was happening with a PhD student called Jane Stout. And to cut a five-year story short, basically they're sniffing the flowers. And what they're sniffing them for is the faint whiff of the footprint of a previous bee having recently landed on the flower. Because if one's recently visited it, it'll be empty. There'll be little or no pollen or nectar left. Right. So it's just right. a cue that helps them save a little tiny bit of time that otherwise they would spend climbing into an empty flower. I just thought that was quite clever. And actually, I mean, bumblebees are, they're sort of the, the intellectual giants of the insect world, if you like. They're really smart, relatively speaking. Bumblebees, for those that don't necessarily know, they tend to be bigger than honeybees. Most people are familiar with honeybees and they're more communal, aren't they? And, and Am I right? Bumblebees can be solitary or can have little groups, social groups? Yeah, vaguely, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So actually, the majority of bees are solitary creatures, which is something okay. most people don't appreciate. So in the UK, we've got about 270 species of bee and, and about 240 of those are solitary creatures. A female just makes her own nest. There's no workers, there's no queen. And then at the other end of the spectrum are honeybees, which live in vast colonies of tens of thousands of workers, all daughters looking after the queen. And bumblebees are kind of between the two. They have small colonies that are short-lived. They only live for four or five months at best. But they do have workers and a queen who oh. does most of the reproduction. And as you say, they are the big, furry, often colourful insects that we commonly see in our gardens. Bumblebees are the most obvious bees. And if you ask someone to draw a bee, they'll draw something that's big and fat with yellow and black stripes. And they're basically, they're drawing a bumblebee. That's wonderful. So they have a sort of a gentle reputation. Do they sting at all? Can they be aggressive? Yeah, they certainly do sting. I've been stung quite a few <laughs> times over the years when I've deserved it, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Has it in the uh, job, yes. But when they're on flowers, they'll never sting you unless you grab them in your hand or sit on one or something. They are basically pretty docile. The only time they will deliberately sting you is if you open up their nest. They'll sting to defend the nest mm -hmm. of the queen and so on. And some species are a bit stroppier than others. They will sometimes actually chase you. I've, I've had to run away a few times when I've been dealing with bumblebee nests. But, uh, but otherwise, they're very peaceful. That's interesting. I mean, presumably, bumblebees have been around. The, the history of them goes back way before humans are around. How far back does it go? And what's the evolutionary history of it? Obviously, it seems like honeybees and the hives are quite unusual when it comes to the bee type of creature. Be interesting to delve into a little bit about why you think that might have happened that way. But when were bumblebees or types of bumblebees sort of first on the planet, roughly? Yeah. So actually, it probably makes sense to go back to the beginning of bees. So bees evolved from solitary wasps about 120 million years ago. So that was back when dinosaurs were wandering around. And so the first bees would themselves have been solitary. And so their waspy ancestors probably stocked a nest with paralyzed insect prey and laid their eggs on them. And at some point, one of those species of wasps switched to stocking the nest with pollen instead of insects as a sort of alternative protein source. And that was basically the sort of first bee. So if you like, bees are sort of wasps turned vegetarian. 
and they evolved sociality after that, but still probably 100 million years or more ago. In fact, the oldest fossil bee we have trapped in amber is from about 100 or so million years ago. And that is almost identical to a social stingless bee that's alive today. So um, this, oh, wow. this certainly evolved the social lifestyle pretty early on. Bumblebees actually are, are relative newcomers, and they appeared about 30 million years ago. So still obviously way, way, way before we were around. But after the dinosaurs had gone and in the sort of age of giant mammals, and there was a cold period in Earth's history, which may explain why bumblebees appeared around then, because they're basically big furry creatures that are adapted to living in cold, wet, windy climates like ours. So in that respect, they're quite unusual. The most insects are at their most numerous and species rich in the tropics but actually bumblebees are very few of them live in the tropics they're more so, of a temperate creature so would there have been bumblebees hovering around woolly mammoths and woolly rhinoceroses or is that too cold for them no there certainly would have been so today there are bumblebee species that live in the arctic circle there's bombus polaris uh, and several others that live their whole life cycle in these really short arctic summer and the reason they can do that is they're very weird and unusual insects. They generate their own heat. You know, most oh. insects are cold-blooded, essentially. Their body temperature is more or less the same as the air temperature, and so they have to sit in the sun if they want to warm up. But bumblebees and a few other large insects like hawk moths and some big dragonflies and so on generate heat in their flight muscles. And in the case of bumblebees, the fur keeps it in. And so they can fly around when the air temperature might be below zero, that's really interesting. So this is sort of very broadly parallel to mammals sort of developing the ability to sort of have warm blood and expand the environments they live in. Fascinating. Yeah, they're kind of more similar to us than they are to many other insects, at least in respect to how they uh, maintain their body temperature. I just love the idea that there'll be bumblebees hovering around woolly mammoths. It's a really cool image. So obviously that's the past. Now, there are some issues that appears that there are some issues at the moment with decline in insect numbers in the modern world caused by a whole bunch of interrelated issues, I would imagine. Do you want to just expand upon that? Because it's obviously a huge concern for us. Yeah. I mean, there's a growing body of evidence that showing that insects broadly appear to be in decline. Most of the long-term data we have is from Europe and North America. So there's some massive knowledge gaps. And even in Europe, which is the sort of best studied place in the world, there are lots of insects that nobody's bothering to count at all, the more obscure ones. But the data sets we do have, which mainly are for things like butterflies and moths and bees, suggest that they're in decline. And some of the data sets show really rapid decline, which is sort of pretty alarming. There was a study published mainly by a bunch of German entomologists in 2017. I was one of the authors, it must be said, but I did very little to deserve that. It was based on this really big data set collected mainly by amateur insect enthusiasts all over Germany who put out these traps that catch flying insects called malaise traps. And they found a 76% decline in the biomass of flying insects in 27 years up to 2016. That really kind of set alarm bells off around the world, I think, because people are thinking, well, is there something really strange happening in Germany or is this happening everywhere? And if it is happening everywhere, you know, there's going to be consequences if this carries on. And all the data we have suggests that it is a general pattern. Maybe the German data, the rate of decline seems to be a bit faster than that of other insects. But nonetheless, there is a problem. And obviously, there are lots of repercussions because insects are really important. 
I mean, they make up the bulk of life on Earth in terms of numbers of species. Um, we've so far named about one and a half million species in total, animals and plants and everything else put together, of which 1.1 million are insects. So if they disappear, that's most of biodiversity gone. But then, of course, an awful lot of things eat insects. So many birds and bats and lizards and freshwater fish eat insects. So they'll go if they've got nothing to eat. And insects do a whole bunch of other things. You know, often they're just called ecosystem services is the kind of phrase, which I never find terribly helpful. But anyway, things like pollination is the one that people recognize. But there are a whole bunch of others like pest control and recycling of dung and dead bodies and cow pats and leaves and trees and all sorts of other things and keeping the soil healthy and so on and so on. So basically, we do need insects. And also, it's not just the adult form, which is crucially important, is it? A lot of them have larval stages, which exist in the earth, from what I remember. They're everywhere on, on land and in freshwater, basically. There are so many insects that, that they've sort of evolved to occupy almost any imaginable niche you can think of. The only place you don't get them is in the sea, interestingly. Mm. Uh, virtually no insects in the sea. But basically, the crustaceans are the sort of marine equivalent of insects, really. They're a kind of sister group of arthropods. And they've been there an awfully long time, so they probably aren't very easy to muscle out of that niche. Well, so the, the insects, sorry, I'm digressing slightly here. No, no, it's great. Uh, it's really interesting. In, insects, the keys to their success really on land are being able to fly and being waterproof, neither right. of which is any good to you in the sea. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as you say, crustaceans had a, a several hundred million year head start on them in the sea. So uh, yes, I think that explains why they never made it a success there. Cool. Okay, right. So the human food chain is obviously dependent to a large extent on insects in all sorts of different ways. I mean, obviously, insects are a challenge to the human food chain sometimes as well in terms of pests. And obviously, pesticides, you know, there's a lot of money spent on pest control. And pests, I guess, are a human definition of, of an annoying insect that's going to consume what we don't want them to consume. So that's an interesting one. And there's a whole move... Well, maybe you can, again, expand on that a little bit. There's a, a lot of pesticides. I mean, I remember DDT, the story of DDT back in the day being banned for a long time ago because it caused problems further up the food chain, the trophic pyramid. But that might be worth talking about a little bit and how that reflects on what's happening with neonicotinoids as well. Yeah, it's a murky and slightly sordid subject, I must admit. <laughs> uh, but it's something I got drawn into and done quite a bit of research on. So let's start at the beginning. I mean, basically, synthetic pesticides really emerged around the Second World War. There were two kind of groups, DDT and its relatives, which was developed for controlling mosquitoes and preventing malaria in the troops fighting in warmer climates. And at the same time in Germany, they were trying to develop nerve agents to kill people and they invented organophosphate insecticides. Anyway, they were introduced and they became enormously popular with farmers following the Second World War. It seemed like they were a kind of wonder product that could greatly increase crop yields. And, and everyone was, with hindsight, somewhat naive. And of course, it didn't go well. And it quickly turned out that there were side effects of using these products. Um, they weren't just killing the insects we wanted to kill. They were killing everything else. The pests were becoming resistant. So farmers were applying more and more and getting poisoned themselves. And as you mentioned, DDT in particular, um, bioaccumulates up the food chain. So top predators like birds of prey were starting to die and their eggshells were thinning. So they broke before they could hatch. And 
there was a whole catalogue of disasters which were really kind of brought to the world's attention in 1962 when Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, this kind of iconic book which described all the harmful environmental damage being caused by pesticides. And there was quite a backlash and a big kind of heated debate that went on for a while. But eventually, most of those early pesticides were banned. And I think it's fair to say that scientists at that point slightly took their eye off the ball. We kind of thought the problem had been solved. You know, we were all taught about how DDT had caused all these problems, but now it had been got rid of and replaced with much safer chemicals, or at least so we thought. And it was only really in the 1990s that attention began to return to pesticides when this new family of chemicals called neonicotinoids started to be flagged up as causing kind of similar problems in a way to DDT and its relatives. So neonicotinoids are neurotoxins. They're basically synthetic variants of nicotine. They're incredibly poisonous to insects. I mean, weight for weight, they're about 7,000 times more poisonous than DDT is <laughs> to insects. A few nanograms is all it takes to kill a honeybee, for example. And they were introduced in the mid-90s, just as with DDT. They were terribly popular to start with. No one foresaw side effects. But it turned out that they're actually rather persistent in the environment. They accumulate in soils. They were turning up in pollen and nectar of wildflowers contaminating rivers and streams, basically getting everywhere. I mean, this is kind of like Novichok for bees, incredibly poisonous neurotoxins. And eventually it became clear that they were one of the reasons why the bees were declining and probably one of the drivers of insect declines more generally. And the European Union, when enough evidence accumulated, banned most of them in 2018. But they're still very widely used in the rest of the world. And I guess the bigger picture is that we now have hundreds of times more pesticides available to farmers than in Rachel Carson's day. And there seems to be a general pattern of them slipping through the regulatory process. And then after decades of use, evidence starting to appear that they're doing harm. Um, and it's not just neonicotinoids. There are dozens of other pesticides that over the years have been flagged up as harmful and usually eventually removed from the system. But all the time they're replaced by another one and another one, and we just go round and round in circles. And the fundamental problem doesn't go away. I think essentially, if you know, we currently apply 3 million tons of pesticides to the world every year. Um, if you do that, there are going to be side effects. There are going to be undesired consequences. Mm. You're going to kill things you didn't mean to kill. Yeah. Do you think there should be a different regime then for introducing agricultural chemicals in that there's a presumed toxicity and you have to prove, I suppose it would all down to money, you have to sort of prove that it's not so toxic or prove that it can be used safely. It's sort of the opposite way around. I mean, I think the US has a policy which is unless it's proven in general, everything is okay unless it's proven not to be, whereas other regimes have it the other way around for drugs. You have to prove that it's safe or you prove yeah. that it's effectiveness. And I wonder whether... It's the way round, you know, that the agribusinesses can introduce a thing, do a quick survey, decide it kills the thing they're spraying it at, sell it, and then suddenly the evidence accumulates over the years that it's actually bad. But then by then the damage is done. And I wonder whether it needs a different approach in uh, regulation. Yeah, it does, certainly. But as you can guess, there's huge resistance to any change that would make it harder to register new chemicals. And they are tested 
for harmful effects on beneficial organisms like bees. But the tests are quite superficial, so they tend to be short-term studies where you expose, let's say, a a honeybee to a single dose of pesticide. And if it's still alive after 48 hours, then all is deemed to be fine. It's rather simplistic, where in the real world, what's a more likely scenario is that a bee might be chronically exposed for weeks or months probably not to one pesticide, but to a mixture of pesticides. Mm. And those kind of aspects aren't looked at at all in the regulatory process. So it misses things. It doesn't look at sublethal effects, which in the case of neonicotinoids, it turns out that aside from being lethal at very small doses, at even smaller doses, they impair the learning ability of bees. So they can't navigate. And that's as good as a death sentence to a bee. But in a lab test tube, you wouldn't see any harm at all. Mm. So there are lots of things like that that basically aren't evaluated, and which is why we end up with this situation where chemicals that are harmful slip through the net over and over again. Mm. How you come up with a better system? I mean, the the medicine system seems to be slightly better in that it requires a demonstration that any new drug is not only is it safe, but also that it has to be better than any existing drug that's on the market which would probably help or at least reduce the kind of proliferation of pesticides. But there must also be an educational component to this as well, so that the farming community needs to learn to minimise the use of these things. I understand that we've got to grow food for an ever-expanding population and chemicals play a part in that, so do fertilisers, but there are aspects of it that we need to think about medium and long-term as well. How is the education of the farming community to this issue going? I mean, there is a bigger picture which is worth thinking about, which is that I think that the whole kind of industrial farming model is flawed, that it isn't just that it's wiping out bees, that it's wiping out pollinators. It's one of the biggest drivers of biodiversity loss globally. Um, But it's also doing terrible damage to soils. It's a massive contributor to climate change. Roughly a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions are associated with farming. So it can't carry on the way it has gone and we need to somehow come up with a way of feeding everybody that's sustainable it has to be sustainable because we want to carry on doing it into the future and at the moment the system we have is not i don't think sustainable it's doing too much Mm. environmental harm so we should be looking for alternatives i mean it sounds a bit sort of hippie but basically i think to sum it up we need to try and kind of work with nature rather than against it You know, we need to be encouraging natural enemies of crop pests rather than Mm. spraying insecticides that kill the natural enemies. We need to be encouraging pollinators. We need to be looking after the soil and soil health and carbon capture in soil and so on and so on, which the current regime isn't really doing. And I mean, I think there's some really interesting, promising alternatives out there. Things like agroforestry and permaculture and organic farming, which I think the evidence suggests have the potential to feed the world with a little bit of investment and support. It's interesting because I have my own farm as well and I grow, it's not certified organic, but I grow grass, long-term grass for my horses and I sell some of it off as well. So it's, it's commercial. It's not going to make me a lot of money, but it turns things over, but I don't spray it with anything. And um, when I cut it for hay, I leave enormous margins. Now I leave those margins because they're really nice for exercising my horses along, but it's also lovely to see the landscape with the, wild grasses and wild flowers coming through. And it, it's a pleasure and it has an amenity value over and above the financial value of getting a few more square yards of hay cut. 
And I wonder whether we need to learn to value, somehow put a value on other aspects rather than massive crop yields. And, and I think the crop yield thing largely comes from the pressure of food shortages during the Second World War, potentially, because there's a generation that grew up being forced to put marginal land into agricultural use, which quite frankly, shouldn't be, it should be left alone. And, you know, the Ministry of Agriculture pushing everybody to dig for victory. And that sort of stuck as the idea. I had a conversation with somebody and he said, oh, you could get a bigger yield if you put this fertilizer on. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't need more hay and it would cost me proportionately more. And in fact, I'd be damaging the soil long term and the net gain for me would literally be a few pounds an acre. And it just seems like a really bad bargain. He had difficulty kind of working on the idea that yield wasn't everything. Well, that I 100% agree is a big part of the problem is that we set in place a whole system of farming during and after the war, which was entirely focused on maximizing food production because, you know, people were having rationing, were real food shortages. The problem is we didn't recognize that that didn't need to continue that actually we were awash with food in Europe by the 80s. But unfortunately, we carried on essentially to almost the present day with that same kind of approach to farming, that we throw every chemical we can think of to try and maximise yield without necessarily maximising profit and certainly without regard to the kind of long-term health of the environment. And we somehow need to change that approach. It is slightly difficult because farmers are squeezed as well mm. um, by the supermarkets and you know, it's quite difficult to make a living from farming. So yes. you can see why farmers are very focused on, you know, they don't want to leave any land uh, mm. unfarmed because that could be the difference between profit and loss. But we need to support them in changing their approach. We already heavily subsidize farming. So the mechanism is there. I think we just need to change what we subsidize them to do. Yes, because there's the whole thing about, I mean, again, I don't know the details of this, but ploughing, for example, is incredibly disruptive to everything in the soil and is used really to create a nice looking field for the end of season sort of summary, if you like. And I've never really understood the principle of ploughing everything up and turning the soil over because it seems extraordinarily disruptive to that complex ecosystem, which is the surface of the land. Yeah, it is interesting. And difficult actually the whole area the main reason farmers plow is to get rid of weeds you just turn over the soil bury the weeds and you've got a nice empty field that you can sow your crop into and that can grow without competition if you don't plow then you get weeds establishing and spreading or at least you need to come up with an alternative way of controlling them i mean no-till farming has become very trendy around the world in recent years because of the claims that it's much better for soil health which are largely true, I think. But the downside of it is that the easy alternative to get rid of weeds is to spray a bunch of herbicides. Right. Uh, so no-till farming may be better for carbon capture in the soil, but it's associated with higher levels of use of pesticides. I think maybe there's a compromise, which is to cultivate to a very shallow depth so you're not disturbing most of the soil and most of the worms survive and so on. But it can still, if it's done carefully, get rid of most of the weeds. What kind of depth is that just out of interest? Are we talking about a few inches? I was just reading, actually literally this afternoon, reading a report from the Soil Association about this kind of compromise. And probably that would be the best thing to direct people to. Okay. It's interesting because I study a lot of the medieval period. And obviously, if you are manually ploughing the land, it is really difficult to plough very deep. 
they're literally turning over. I mean, the mould plough sort of turned over. Really, they're only doing the top two or three inches. And, you know, because, you know, if you've got a pair of oxen and a man ploughing an acre a day, which is what an acre means, it's sort of a day's work, they're not going very deep. They can't. They physically can't go very deep. So you're turning over the soil to create that sort of beginning place for your crop, but you're not actually disturbing it. And I do wonder, it'd be interesting, I'll, I'll try and look that Soil Association report up, but it would be absolutely fascinating to find out that almost by mistake, the medieval people were having the best compromise. I guess modern farm machinery make it incredibly easy to plough almost as deep as you like. I mean, it's, it yes. costs diesel the deeper you go, but you regularly see farmers turning over, you know, a great depth of soil and flipping it, um, mm. which, as you say, is is perhaps not necessary and certainly not what people used to do presumably that's actually also bad for the life cycle of insects going back to insects you know a lot of the insects that live in i presume they live at certain depths yeah and most of them near the surface amongst the roots of whatever plants are growing near the surface so yeah and if you do flip the soil over with a deep plow then you're going to be killing and burying alive a lot of those insects Mm. which is not going to be good for them yeah so what do you reckon we could do in the future then i mean we're talking about you know, compromises, different pesticides, herbicides. What can we do as the challenge to produce more? Obviously, what we don't want to do is chuck the problem to the third world and say, look, you can have all the nasty chemicals and we'll just buy your food because we're rich. That seems unfair to the planet, basically, and to the third world as well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. What solutions do you think we can hope for in the future? It is difficult, isn't it, and complicated, um, because there are so many things to factor in. But I think we need to move towards a farming system focused primarily on producing healthy fruit and veg, less meat consumption, more locally grown seasonal produce being consumed, and persuade people to pay more for it. Because small-scale fruit and veg operations can produce a lot of food without using lots of pesticides. There's a really interesting biodynamic farm near where I live. And when I first heard about it, I was pretty skeptical about biodynamic farming. It does incorporate some aspects of what appear to be witchcraft. What, what it, quickly, what is biodynamic? Bi- biodynamic farming is kind of organic plus, if you like. They're very focused on soil health. They don't use any pesticides at all. They don't use any synthetic fertilizers at all. And that all seems fine and sensible to me. They're very focused on looking after the soil health and pollinator populations and so on. Great. 
by the way, biodynamic was invented by Rudolf Steiner, who also invented the schools, uh, which are known for being slightly eccentric. Right. Um, they make various potions, essentially, in, <laughs> in slightly odd ways. So, for example, I don't know all the details because I've not been personally heavily involved, but uh, they'll stuff flowers into uh, an animal horn and then bury it for a year and then dig it up and use whatever's inside the horn at that point, mix it with water and, and water it onto their fields. And they think that that right. benefits. Whether it does or not, I, I, mm. I have no idea. And I've never seen any kind of scientific test of whether it achieves anything. Seems unlikely to me, but, you know, who knows? I mean, you can get concoctions of nettles in water and, you know, you can see how you can make... Yeah, yeah. The, the problem is that they're using what's almost a sort of homeopathic dilution. Right, okay. Which is the point at which I wonder how that could work. I don't want to criticise biodynamic at all because, all of that aside, if you visit a biodynamic farm, certainly the one near me, they produce lots of food. Their yields are pretty good. They're producing about 19 tonnes a hectare of fruit and veg, which is a lot and feeds a lot of people. Um, yes. They employ lots of people. There's a lot of labor involved. They do a lot of hand weeding and so on. The site is teeming with wildlife. So, you know, they've got healthy soils. They've got loads of worms in the soil. If you dig a hole and have a look for them, there are lots of butterflies and bumblebees and pollinators and so on. So they're employing people, they're producing food, and they're looking after biodiversity all at the same time. It seems to me they're doing something right. And, you know, maybe we should be supporting, well, firstly, doing more research into, okay, what are the yes. aspects of this that really work and, and are there things we can improve and so on. There's very little funding for any of these kind of more alternative forms of agriculture mm. at the moment. And we should be supporting them. I mean, this particular biodynamic farm has a local farm shop that they sell direct to local people. So it's sort of close to zero food miles, no packaging and all the rest of it, apart from brown paper bags. It seems to me that, that we need to do more of that kind of food production, which would get more people back onto the land in farming. And it would only work if we could persuade people to pay the higher price that is associated with eating seasonal, locally produced organic, pesticide-free produce. There is something wonderful about seasonal food as well, because the idea of not being able to have strawberries year-round means that when it's strawberry season, it's very special. And then it's no longer strawberry season, and you miss them, and you look forward to them again. And Absolutely. It's just, you know, These kind of tasteless strawberries that you get in the supermarkets in December, and, and there's a horrible tomatoes out of season that are sort of orange and taste of nothing at all. Yeah. We stopped valuing quality food somehow over mm. the years. Um, you see some other countries still do it to some extent. Yes, I, I mean, in Fran France, they do. Yeah. France is particularly good. I remember going into France and Spain. You go into a supermarket there to get your bread, and the bread's pretty damn good by all comparisons. And, and yet the vegetables are all sort of displayed like a market stall, literally inside the supermarket. And, and that, to me, is wonderful. You can see what you're getting, and you can choose it yourself. You, you can buy the amount you want. You don't have to have a bag of potatoes you can just have enough potatoes the next couple of days or whatever it might be and 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 i also think that educating people about the value of food is quite important because cities are often like food deserts in many ways the food is an abstract concept but a lot of people you know they just go to a fast food restaurant to get a meal it's convenient it's probably very expensive as well relatively speaking and they're missing out on that sort of the joy of seasonality and I don't know, people will probably say, well, yeah, but you're wealthy enough to be able to afford this expensive food. But I don't know if it is that expensive. I mean, if you don't eat too much meat, you can live pretty well without spending much money on 
this kind of slightly premium priced fruit and veg. I mean, the current system is incredibly wasteful, and it's very odd that we've somehow come up with a system of farming which is doing terrible damage to the environment and at the same time is giving us a really unhealthy diet. You know, we have this mm. epidemic of obesity around the world with associated diabetes, which is costing us terribly. I saw a recent estimate that in the UK, poor diet is estimated to cost the economy about £17 billion a year. It's a real economic impact on us. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're making ourselves ill and costing ourselves money by eating crap, basically. Uh, So something's gone badly wrong. And trying to move people back towards cooking fresh, locally produced seasonal fruit and veg seems like it would have lots of benefits for us, for our health, for our well-being generally. And it's something that we ought to aspire to rather than just carrying on down this kind of processed muck consumption. But also it's probably very economically sensible as well. Actually, if you do the maths properly in a joined up way, you know, having a healthy population that doesn't use the NHS's resources in the same way is probably disproportionately saving money. So if you think about it from that perspective, it might actually be the cheaper solution for us all if we were to eat healthier food. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, we spend about three and a half billion pounds a year in farm subsidies, most of which Mm -hmm. is until recently, at least, has been supporting industrial farming. If you think that we could save 17 billion in health bills in cost to the NHS, that would support an awful lot of biodynamic farms or organic farms or whatever kind of Mm. more sustainable farming system you want to devise. I like the the allotment concept as well. I mean, there's like like 100 square meters of food for for a lot of people that work the allotment. It's a it's a hobby and you know, it can be quite hard work, but it can be incredibly rewarding. But the amount of food that a well-run allotment can generate actually yeah. is disproportionately significant. It is. I mean, we actually did some research on this in, in allotments around Brighton and the most kind of um, experienced allotmenters we came across were getting about 35 tonnes of food per hectare. That's scaling up because obviously an allotment's much smaller than a, a hectare. Mm. But, you know, if you compare that to industrial farming, I mean, wheat production gets eight tonnes a hectare of wheat. I mean, you're comparing very different products, so maybe it's not fair. But nonetheless, if you look at that kind of allotment, 35 tonnes a hectare, you only need about 200,000 hectares of well-managed allotment to produce all the fruit and veg that Britain consumes. We import 70% of our fruit and veg. We could grow it all at home in 200,000 hectares, which is 5% of the arable land of the UK. So we could easily produce all of our own fruit and veg if we were prepared to eat seasonal produce rather than demanding avocados and so on. Yeah. And if people put the effort in as well, there's a certain amount of effort to it. But again, that effort probably brings health benefits, being outdoors, learning about the cycle of the seasons, actually appreciating the weather, because it's something that I talk about a lot in some of my videos is when you live outside, you sort of appreciate different seasons for the different values they bring. You know, spring is great because it's like, finally, the winter's over. And, you know, you start doing things and then summer gets a bit hot, but harvest is coming. And, you know, the autumn is when you start to harvest your food, storing things for the winter, that cosy feeling. I know this sounds a bit crazy, but the cosy feeling when I've got barns filled with hay that I've grown for the horses for the winter, it's actually a wonderful experience. And anybody that grows their own food probably appreciates that as well. There's something miraculously fantastic about your own potatoes. Yeah, digging them up. 
is sort of like unwrapping Christmas presents or something. Yeah. And one of the things that I find that we ought to sort out is that apparently there are about 90,000 people on waiting lists for allotments right now in the UK. You know, people mm-hmm. want to grow their own zero food miles, zero packaging, healthy fruit and veg, but they can't because they can't get yeah. hold of any, any land. And that surely is not impossible to find land that could be opened up for people to use for allotments. And, and as you say, there's all sorts of indirect benefits associated with it. Mm. You know, there, there was a really interesting study from the Netherlands which showed that basically people with allotments are healthier than people who don't have allotments. Right. Um, yeah. They compared them to their neighbours. They found people who had a neighbour without an allotment and just looked at all sorts of measures of health. And the difference only really kicked in in old age. So once they got past about 60, on average, the allotment holders were healthier. But there's mm. loads of other evidence that being outside, that getting the sort of gentle exercise you get with gardening and so on is good for you. So, you know, we should be encouraging as many people as possible to get out there and grow some veg and yes. in schools, you know, lessons in how to grow stuff, because it's something yes. I think most people have never done. Yeah. And the challenge of planting something in the right way, and some veggies are actually very easy to grow. Quite frankly, potatoes will grow anyway, pretty much put them into the ground, cover them with something and they do their job. It might not maximize yield, but you know, they'll still grow more potatoes afterwards. But I agree. And I wonder whether planning rules, we could look into it from a planning perspective, which is if somebody's building houses and we do need more houses, it appears, some of the land has to be set aside. Either the gardens have to be big enough or some land has to be set aside for a certain proportion of those households to have an allotment, to have their own green space that sort of comes with it. It'd be a really interesting challenge. And I presume developers would hate it because they won't be able to put as many houses. But, but it's the sort of thing you could imagine might happen one day. People saying, you know, it is your allotment. You don't have to use it. It can go to somebody else, but you have one if you want it. It would be great if everyone had that option, wouldn't it? That, that yeah. you know, an allotment could be made available within a mile or two of where you live, or at most, or something. Yeah. It seems to be that kind of fundamental human right—the right to grow a few potatoes or carrots or whatever. You, and yeah. it's really sad that people have lost access to the land. Even in the in the medieval period, you took a look about towns, and I was looking up the small claims court equivalent in medieval times—the sort of magistrates level complaints—and they're they're about people's backyard pigs escaping into the next door's vegetable patch. And it's quite a lot about cesspits as well. There's quite an obsession about cesspits and, uh, and, and drains, of course, in the medieval period. But there's an awful lot about people's backyards were literally micro farms. You know, they'd have one or two pigs and the food waste, if there was any, would go to the pigs and the pigs would be slaughtered for bacon and salted away. And, and that would be for the winter. And a lot of them had vegetable gardens as well. So this is even in the towns. Now, I know our town's more compact and lots of people live in apartments. They don't have much space at all. But it would be lovely to think that town planning would allow for food growing as well, potentially. Front gardens could be converted into it. I often look at lawns and I think all of the money going into a lawn to look nice and be cut and all that energy going into maintaining the length of the grass. And I'm thinking... It's a monoculture. There's hardly anything in there. That's not good for biodiversity. Grow weeds, at least. You know, grow something else that's a bit more interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, one of my uh, pet subjects is, is how we can make our gardens and urban areas more biodiverse, more wildlife friendly. And it's actually it's a pretty easy win. You know, it's kind of a there's no real downside 
to reducing mowing of our lawns to allowing a few weeds to creep in to planting a few pollinator friendly flowers in our gardens to not spraying it all with pesticides and so on and potentially huge gains you know there are 22 million ish private gardens in the uk covering an area of it's about 400,000 hectares so it's it's, oh, wow. it's a bigger area than all of our nature reserves and, you know, just imagine if we could persuade everybody who has a garden to kind of invite nature in and make it a bit wilder and more nature friendly. That would really make a difference. And it would also, you know, mean that kids grew up in green cities where they got to see butterflies and bumblebees and all these creatures buzzing around rather than, you know, sort of growing up afraid of insects because they're unfamiliar. What about the sort of communal spaces in communities? You know, what about the grass verges along motorways and and I sometimes see them sort of being sized down by big machines. And I think, okay, you, you've got a certain safety issue to think about viewing and that kind of stuff, viewing volumes and things at junctions, which need to be thought about. But there's an awful lot of land that nobody has access to, in fact, but insects and animals, wildlife could somehow have access. Is there a move to sort of wild those kind of places a little bit? I kind of get the feeling there might be. Yeah, I mean, actually, the charity Plant Life have been really championing this for the last couple of years. I, mean, I think there's huge potential to encourage wildlife and wildflowers and so on on road verges. Obviously, it's a kind of national network that's ready mm. there. And as you say, at present, a lot, of the, a lot of these verges are cut maybe eight times a year, which is an awful lot of labor and petrol for no obvious purpose. You know, you might need to cut the meter or so closest to the road for visibility reasons um, but often you've got 10 times that 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 doesn't need to be cut that could be full of wildflowers and again a bit like the gardening thing there's no real downside to this there's no compromise to be made it's not like farming where you the, you know there might be a trade-off between producing food and looking after wildlife with these sort of waste spaces then they could all be full of orchids and all sorts of other beautiful flowers and happy insects as far as i'm concerned and it yeah. is happening um, yeah. since lockdown. It's by default when councils <laughs> couldn't cut last year. Lots of people loved seeing all these flowers suddenly appeared in places where they'd never seen them before. And so when the council started this spring cutting those verges again, a lot of people protested and said, hang on a minute, you know, we liked those flowers. Why the heck are you doing this? We don't yes. want you to do it anymore. Yeah, there's a certain amount of education there. And that might take generational change as well, because there's certain people like neat and tidy places for whatever reason, maybe just the way they've been brought up. But there's a, probably a generation coming through that appreciates the beauty of the sort of slightly wilder micro forests, if you like, you know, mini wildernesses on the edge of a road. And as you say, there's almost literally no downside. It's, it's only upside. It literally is cheaper to leave them be. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, you're right there. There is the sort of tidy, old-fashioned kind of approach people don't easily change their minds and if they've always seen verges mode and they think that's how they should look then mm. it comes as a bit of a shock when they're suddenly uh, awash with flowers and tall grasses and so on but mm. i think opinions are changing on that well it's a hopeful place to sort of draw this to a conclusion but did you want to talk about your books in particular <laughs> you want to let people know I, how they can find out more from you of course, I should. I'm never very good at plugging my own books, but uh, I have a new one out called Silent Earth, which is basically about insects and how amazing they are and the evidence that they're declining and why they're declining. And, and most importantly, what we can all do about it in lots of different ways, making our gardens more wildlife friendly, 
changing our shopping habits to support farmers, encouraging insects and so on and so on. And then before that, I've got a whole bunch of other books. If you want to know about insects uh, and how to encourage them in your garden and generally how they're kind of wonderful and important, then, then have a look at my back catalogue, but I'm not going to go through them all. Okay, that's wonderful. Do you have anywhere anybody can follow you on the sort of usual sort of social media? Is there... I'm on Twitter, at Dave Goulson. I'm pretty easy to find. It's quite a fun place to exchange information. I should <laughs> mention, I've got some YouTube videos. Okay. How do people find those? I'll just go into YouTube and type my name. Okay, brilliant. Dave, thank you. That's been an absolute pleasure. Really interesting to talk to you about it. And I I hope the future is a little bit more uh, wildlife and insect friendly because insects are so important to us. Yes, they are bugs. They can be in the wrong place. But broadly speaking, they're usually in the right place if we leave them alone and do their job. Yeah, they do far, far more good than harm. And often that good isn't really appreciated, sadly. Mm. And uh, we need to change that. And they've been around for hundreds of millions of years. And they've as much right to be here as we have. And we definitely need to do more to look after them. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I look forward to speaking to you again sometime. Yeah, that would be fun. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.